We're back. I want to welcome you guys to Grace Church Offstage. Uh, it's going to be a fun one today. We, we've had some pretty good conversations here lately, but today we have a guest. Pastor Larry Walker is with us today. If you don't know, if you're new to the podcast or the church, it's my dad. That's who's with us today. Now, uh, what's interesting about this guy is that most of you don't know his good stories. He tells lots of stories. He's uh, he's he's been around for a long time with us. <laughs> well, I didn't mean to say it that way. But his best stories, he tends to kind of keep private. He has this ability to kind of he sees the best in everyone, and so he always uh, some of his best stories somehow just stay private. So today is your chance to kind of learn about some of the best stories that this guy has. And uh, he's interesting for this reason. He's done all sorts of different things in life. He's laid asphalt, he's pastor, he's had um, almost every position in a church you can have. But something that he's done in his life, a, uh, a major part of it, he's been a ghost writer. Now, uh, I'll kind of have him explain this in a second. But this is interesting because it's put him in uh, on site uh, in these spaces where all these these huge stories have kind of happened inside the church world. He's gotten to know uh, extremely famous people. He's gotten to be a part of some, just some, uh, I don't know if I want to call it crazy or, <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's crazy. He's been in the background of some of the most crazy things that have happened in the church world uh, in the last 30 years. And so uh, as I've gotten older, the more and more my interest is has really kind of peaked in the, the things that he's seen and heard. And again, he has this amazing kind of ability just to, you know, to see the best in everyone. So, um, well, uh, without kind of a delaying this any longer, uh, do you want to explain to people uh, what it is to be a ghostwriter? Well, a ghostwriter uh, in the Christian world in particular, and, and actually in the non-Christian world as well, um, there's one group of people that can't write and they're willing to pay somebody to write a book. And um, But the VIP level, most of the people that write a book that will sell a lot of things, most of those people, in theory, could write a book, but they would go bankrupt while they did it because their, their lives move so fast. In the Christian world, for instance, if you pastor a church uh, that's larger than 2,000 people, the idea of you taking three months off to write a book is completely off the table. So, and if uh, it gets bigger than that, which uh, VIP authors today are, you are on national television weekly, you don't have the luxury of taking that time out to write your own book, unless you're just incredibly intelligent. Um, and so they will, um, they will give people like me... Um, Recordings of their ministries. I almost slipped and said tape recording. That really would have. It started with tape recordings, right? For you. <laughs> oh yeah, mostly. I would. You have stacks and stacks, hundreds of cassette tapes. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so they give that to me, and then once you reach a VIP level, in other words, there's a lot of risk going on involved. Uh, major books they have to succeed. Uh, then you accompany those um, recorded things and. Uh, uh, transcribed messages with live interviews where I go basically to get the I call it cream off the top the latest freshest stuff on this particular subject uh, most people if they're asked questions by a probing uh, interviewer they will give more meat than they even realize is in there and that was what I would do uh, so what I hear you saying in a very uh, extremely tactful way is that 
you are writing books from their sermons and their basic, you know, outlines, their teachings. And then you get an idea for the book and then you sit down with them and you talk with them for a few days. And then you leave them and you go write a book for them. Yes. <laughs> now, it's, if you caught this, um, you know, uh, the first thing he begins to do when I ask him this question, he begins to talk about why he's needed. And of course, you know, uh, him being who he is, he, he, he says that these people are able to write their own books, right? Uh, most of them, but they're just too busy. Now, uh, I'm not as tactful, so I'll just say this. We're all very glad that people like this exist because uh, it's, it's the ghostwriters who make these books readable, understandable, relatable, right? Because there's a lot of work. I mean, you can be a genius and still be awful at writing. It, it, it's, it's not really a measure of your intelligence. It's a, it's a whole craft and skill. Right. I've, I've done books from Ph.D. dissertations. Yeah. People who had Ph.D.s but couldn't spell their way out of a paper bag and uh, <laughs> right. really couldn't string together a sentence on paper because we are trained in school. The minute we put a pen or get on a computer, we go back to basically ninth grade English class. Yeah. And we get stiff and formal and we kill everything that we write. Absolutely. So it's basically... <laughs> it's your job to pull out of these people what's already in them. Yes. And, and then find a way it. to kind of transport it on paper. Yeah. And most of them count on me to fill in gaps and to add highlights. Now, um, you know, uh, there's also the famous people that, they, that you've written books for, which we'll get to that. But kind of tell us, I mean, like, what is like the wide, the wide range of, uh, you know, books or assignments you've done with writing? What is the most odd things that in your career that, that you've written? Huh. Well, the weirdest one is I had a major, major corporation. Um, it wasn't IBM, but it's on that level. They one time paid me $2,000 to rewrite their instruction manual on how to swipe a time card. Nice. Yeah, it, I reduced it from 10 pages or so, obviously written by an engineer, um, to one page, and I was really pushing it there to keep it that long. Because yeah. really, he's like, put the card in and slide it to the right. You know, something like that. But they'd managed to write 15, yes. 10 or 15 pages of this gobbledygook. It took me a long time just to sort through it all. <laughs> that was the weirdest one. I've okay. done comic books as well. <laughs> comic books, uh, instruction manuals. You've also done diet books. Now, you don't need to kind of, you know list them. But as I know the background, you've actually wrote uh, two competing diet books that yes. were that were selling at the same time competing with each other, and you wrote them for two different doctors. Yeah. Which yeah. were on the shelves at the same time. <laughs> yeah. and, then, and they didn't like each other either. Yeah. And they didn't like each other. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's, that's, that's fun to hear that. Now, um, how'd this whole journey for you kind of start? Is I mean, you know, I, I've heard of this this craft, obviously because of you, but how do you end up in this world of like ghostwriting? Uh, I backed my way into it. Oh, I, I hated writing. <laughs> I did. I really did hate writing. I was always good at it. I was one of those kids all the way through college that I would wait to the last possible minute, like a certain son that I know. Well, I don't uh, know which one. I would wait to the last minute and write it and then get you know an A plus and then skip on my way. Uh, but I really hated to write because it's such hard work. And it always forces you to be away from people. Um, but later in my life, I learned to really love it, especially when 
I began to be able to touch the anointing. I felt, I call it, when I felt the finger of God on what I was working on with an author, then I could work long hours and think nothing of it. So that's, that's how I discovered it. And the real message, I, I did a book for the very first major book that was through a major publisher was for a uh, professor at Oral Roberts University and she was a good friend and uh, so oh, okay. I did that for a favor for her she in turn dropped my name to the head office at ORU and it just so happened that Oral Roberts wanted to do a book so ORU um, explain kind of like what that is for people who don't know uh, that's Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma and this university started in the 60s by uh, uh, Oral Roberts who at that time was best known as an evangelist he was on TV back then, right? Yeah, he was on TV uh, prime time, actually. I forget, I think it was NBC. And uh, he really felt led by the Lord to start the university. And uh, then he had an unusual dream that the university would actually send people out into the real world instead of putting them in a cocoon. He really felt like Christians would do the most good out where the people were. So... Um so Oral Roberts was around kind of back when these uh, TV evangelists were um, extremely kind of big. So he had a show on NBC. I think that Billy Graham had a show on the same nights, right? And then I also think that um, one of the Bakers had a show at the time. I mean, yes. he was a big deal. Right? Jimmy Baker, yes. Right. I mean, and so at that time, I mean, he was huge. Yes, he His was. books, his TV ministry... Uh, from what I was told, it was like he would hold these, these uh, huge kind of gatherings the same way that um, Billy Graham was, right? Yeah, he was. He also, uh, actually, I call him the two Jimmys. You also had Jimmy Swaggart. Gotcha. And uh, Jimmy Swaggart at that time, it was said that he was actually winning more people to the Lord in his crusades than Billy Graham was. <laughs> right. just happened to be in South America a lot of the time. Okay, yeah. <laughs> It's a good competition to be in, I'm sure. Now, okay, now, Noel Roberts is a pretty interesting character because he was famous not just for salvations, but for miracles, right? Yes. And so, in his crusades, he was, you know, one of the first people to bring people up on a stage, to kind of pray for them there, to see healings in yes. the moment, right? He was part of the um, latter rain movement. There were a group of a number, uh, a number of individuals from Canada, the United States, and Europe, who had had stepped into these uh, the gifts of the Spirit, you know, described in the, in the scriptures. It was kind of an offspring of a, the um, not charismatic, but the early Pentecostal awakenings in the early 1900s. So here, these guys come uh, right after the war, World War II. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, Oral Roberts was known as a healing evangelist, and he started off in tents. He would go in some of the largest gospel tents that ever existed. Yes, absolutely. But he early on was a different breed. Uh, he was he liked to bring people up and lay his hands on them right in front of everyone, whether they were healed or not. And he would film it, and he also had a crew that would follow up on everyone who claimed to be healed because he was keenly aware that there would be critics and that even believers needed to be reassured. as They would follow up and make sure that they weren't faked. So, if these names are kind of new to you, I want to kind of 
highlight a few things here. What is interesting about this guy, um, Old Roberts, is that um, he starts out poor, right? Um, yeah. Extremely poor and unknown. Uh, his healing ministry gets so much attention and acclaim that he becomes famous very quickly. His, his crowds grow and grow and grow. Uh, he starts to write books, starts to tour. He starts mm-hmm. to have a TV show. And then he starts doing some things which I, which I, which now the older I get begin to um, fascinate me. He, he sets out to start a college, right? So yes. this ORU. Now what's different about ORU is that he sets out to start an actual college. So it, it offers degrees in anything. It's not just like a Bible school, right? right. Yeah. He, he knew the difference. First of all, he knew the difference between a college and a university. And he wanted it to be a university from the beginning. What's the difference there? Well, a university uh, offers multiple disciplines. They'll offer degrees in several areas. It's... Uh, uh, very often, a university will have a college inside of it, like the College of right. Medicine and College of Law or something like that. And the university is much tougher to be accredited. You have to invest a whole lot more in it to, to, to even get the thing started. But that's what So ORU even was. had a law school. It still does, it, right? That, no, it did at one point. And okay. then they later sold that to Regent University. Oh, okay. And so... And so it... What in the world is a healing evangelist doing starting a university? It, it, well, first of all, uh, as happens often with Oral Roberts, he said that God spoke to him. Hmm. Uh, he was driving by a plot of land along a, a dirt road or a gravel road in South Tulsa, totally uninhabited at that time. And he saw this area and he really felt that God spoke to him, that he was to plant a university. And he gave him a phrase that became the keynote to this day for Oral Robertson. It, it was that he was to raise up young people uh, who would know his name and, and they would go into every man's world and make a difference. So he really believed... where the university phrase comes in because that's exactly every man's world yeah. to go into all different parts of society. Yeah. He really believed that rather than just going inside four walls, uh, we needed to be out where real people were uh, doing the things they do as, as whether it's pipe fitters or attorneys or nurses or whatever it is. Now... <laughs> Now, Tulsa is a pretty interesting city at this point in history because it becomes kind of a church hub. You have all of these different kind of a church mm-hmm. movements happening. So, um, Word of Faith movement is also at work in Tulsa, right? Yeah, it started um, about mid-time, my time there. I went there as a transfer student in 73, graduated in 76. So you went to Oral Roberts? Oral Roberts University. Uh, and... Uh, in that time period, roughly, and I couldn't tell you the exact year, is when um, uh, Raymont Bible College started across town. And um, at the same time, there were other things going on. And when Oral Roberts made that as hub, there were other ministries in Yeah, Tulsa. there were, yeah. And uh, they were all uh, well-known ministries. So for that reason, it became, we used to, to joke about it as New Jerusalem. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> but I mean, but... It is kind of a big um, thing to know here because, you know, there's all these different types of church movements going on in a city which honestly is not very large. But Tulsa is a decent-sized city. Especially at that time. You know, at that time. But, you know, it's not very large. And yet, at the same time, there is someone who believes in faith just like, say, at Ramah they do. He believes in healing, you know, in the same way that Ramah does. Mm -hmm. But yet he's going about it completely differently. He's not trying to start a ministry school. Right. He has a university. 
And he doesn't stop there, does he? No, no, he kept going. Um, after, right after I graduated, my sister was still a student there. That's when he really had a vision to uh, raise up uh, a hospital that would not only treat uh, sick people and take care of emergencies, but would also do original research in hand-in-hand hand with the work of the Holy Spirit because he really believed that we could be led by God into all kinds of adventures and witty ideas and things like that. So he really believed he um, was phenomenal. He was not afraid of science. Doesn't mean he agreed with every interpretation that science gave us because he... This is back, what, the 70s and 80s? I mean, when was yeah, this? Um, 70s. I mean, it's still a controversial thing for a minister to come out and say that they believe in science. I mean, right now, right? On Facebook. Oh, yeah. okay. If you go on Facebook and say, I believe in science, it has, it has a very powerful kind of a negative feedback in the church. Right. He's doing this in the 70s. And it always goes back to definition. Any true scientist that wants to be honest with you will tell you that science is is the uh, you know intense search for knowledge, accumulating that knowledge, synthesizing it, gathering it, and then building on it. But it's still based on theories. Uh, theories can be proven after successive repeats of, of uh, what we believe or theorems or guidelines. Um, but to say we believe in science, that means the scientific method. Well, many uh, strong Christian academics maintain the academic method. Uh, really, the scientific method came from Christianity. Yeah, the Catholic Church. Yeah. yeah. So what's interesting, okay, so here's a man famous for faith healing. That God is a healer, that we come to God for our healing. And now he goes and he he starts a university, mm-hmm. which again is, is kind of outside the his lane, if you would. Yeah. And now he starts a hospital. Now, is he just trying, is the hospital where you just go to get, you know, you, you get prayer in this hospital for <laughs> healing? Or is this like a real kind of a medical hospital? Like what's going on here? Oh, it was, it was real in every sense of the way. Uh, one of my uh, my roommate uh, during one of those years uh, was actually hired while they were still building the buildings. And so he even took me on a tour before the elevator shafts were completed. All there were were shafts. It was really scary going up in there because it was uh, the tallest building in the city of Tulsa at that time. Right. It had three towers in it. Uh, the tallest tower was a hospital tower. And the shortest tower was meant to be a research Pure scientific and medical research. Research. In, in fact, they had designed uh, that building so that they could come with a helicopter and put a nuclear reactor for nuclear medicine research. In slide Tulsa, it, Oklahoma. In, yeah. A faith healer is trying to create a building that can house a nuclear reactor yeah. for scientific research. Yes. Yeah. And was well on his way toward <laughs> doing mean, that. It just doesn't seem to add up, right? So, Okay. You have gained a following. You have gained millions of dollars from a TV show and influence connections, all because you are famous for advocating faith healing. And now you're going to pour a large amount of those resources, pull strings, raise funds, to build a state-of-the-art hospital in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Is there a tension there? There's a tension there, but not the way Or Robert saw it. You see, he never saw himself as being against medicine. He believed that God heals through multiple streams. He believed that God heals through medicine. He heals through science. He heals through common sense nutrition. 
<laughs> he heals uh, exercise, yeah. and he heals supernaturally. But he had no problem with humanity doing everything humanity is able to do and then having God step in when we've reached the end. Now, I mean, here in 2020, you know, I am fully on board with these ideas. But, you know, there's still a huge majority of the church, especially the part of the church that believes in faith healing, that would not agree with this, mm-hmm. right? Which has issues with, you know, taking pills or expecting doctors to heal us and not having enough faith to believe God. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, well, I have to be careful. There are people in the city of Tulsa who practice the opposite of this. Mm-hmm. There are large movements inside Tulsa that also believe in faith healing who don't agree in this route, yes. right? Yeah, um, absolutely. Now, Oral Roberts was used to uh, uh, getting it from every side. At some point, he was a man who really did pray, and he really felt he heard from God, and he was unafraid to move when he felt a leading. And at one point, at the height of his healing ministry, when he had the tents, and they were, I mean, he would pack thousands under the tent, he got a leading that he was to leave the Pentecostal ranks, not leave his beliefs and not shun the Pentecostal churches, but he really felt God wanted him to join the Methodist church. And when he did, he lost oh my goodness. tens of thousands. He joined the Methodist hundreds. church. Yeah, he became, later became an elder of First Methodist Church of Tulsa. Why? Well, because God told him he needed to, that was one of the ancient wells, so to speak. He didn't use those words, but one of the, the roots of, of strong Christianity. And he was to go there, be an influence for good, but also to reach people and to be an encouragement. He just felt like he was supposed to. So he did. So he got all kinds of, uh, of uh, stuff over that. And he was used to the news media always looking for him to, to say something that they could get him on. And uh, one thing I found out later, because I went to ORU as a skeptic, I don't know, I went there because they offered a degree in television, which I thought was my future, foolishly. But anyway, I went there, got my degree in television. But my senior year is when I discovered something that made me deeply respect Oral Roberts more than ever before. In a private setting, as he was talking to some of the seniors and teaching us some of the things about the kingdom of God, he shared that at one point the Lord led him to go to the University of Tulsa and earn a master's degree in existential philosophy. And we all looked funny and he said, I know that doesn't make sense to you, but basically the Lord wanted me to understand those who oppose me and who oppose his gospel. So, And then watching him whenever there would be a news conference was almost funny because he would allow them to play every stereotype in their questions and they would hit him for being Cherokee. He was at least half Cherokee, Native American. Um, They would hit him for being uneducated and they would treat him like a dumb hick, you know, a farmer. Because he grew up in the, you know, in the outer parts of He started with nothing. Yeah. And he would let them. He'd just give them just enough rope to hang themselves. And then right at the last, just before the thing ended, he'd gig them with something that would just show them for all the idiocy going on there. Now, he would respect people that were honest right. with him. But, oh, he loved playing games with them if they are going to play games with him. So, um, again, we're, we're, we're talking about this this uh, faith healer. And I think the reason I want to lay out this backstory, but if all this is new to you, please don't uh, disengage yet. It's about to get good. What's interesting about Oral Roberts is, I, you know, I really believe this guy was ahead of his time. He was doing things and seeing things which 
now would still be cutting edge if he were doing it right now. Yes. Uh, but he was doing this in the 70s and 80s. Now, um, we've laid all this backstory. His personal story, his ministry is about to take a turn. But uh, as you talk about him, you sound like you've had you know some time with him. Did you, just, mm-hmm. did you just know him from afar as a student, or like did you get time around this person? As a student, I'd run across him because he was very, very much in those days. He's a very healthy guy. Uh, he was in his, I guess, fifties or sixties, but he was playing basketball, which I didn't play. I'm, you can't mm-hmm. see me on radio, but I'm pretty short. So and didn't have the the ability. But anyway. Um, but he is playing ball, and he is out among the students on a regular basis. He still lived in a modest house uh, on the back side of the university property and would open it up, and, and his wife would literally make cookies and serve the students in those days. would walk in and have cookies with the president of the university. He was that kind of man. He really was. He just wasn't. He just didn't fit the stereotype. Right, yeah. um, where I met him was at his lowest moment. Where actually the the most time I spent with him, it was at one of the lowest moments of his lifetime. Right after what some people call the debacle of the city of faith deal, um, he built the city of faith debt free. That hospital towered. It's still it's still the most viable real estate in the city of Tulsa today. Uh, it's kind of been resurrected from the problem days, but. Um, he built that thing debt-free, but it didn't operate debt-free. It took At that time, it took a million dollars a day to open the front doors for business. And so every hospital relies on emergency room income to pay the bills. It's just the way it is. And it's also through the emergency room that you fill the regular beds for other other procedures. And at some point, and I'm not going to point fingers, there's a lot of theories about why or how, um, he felt that it had been engineered by um, uh, jealous parties. But at some point, the other hospitals claimed that um, um, they already uh, were over capacity. There wasn't enough. You know, there's just, it was going to hurt them. So for whatever reason, uh, at the City of Faith, their emergency room privileges were yanked. And so immediately they began to hemorrhage blood. So he had this... Uh, and I, I don't know the numbers, but if you had the largest hospital set of building complexes in the city of Tulsa fully built with state-of-the-art, they literally created what we call the Carroll system, the um, where you have computers at each uh, yeah. set of rooms. At each room. That was invented at ORU. They wrote that. They created it, wrote the first well, software in existence. I've seen that <laughs> hospitals all over the country. You're saying that the first place that was implemented was... At this evangelist hospital. Yeah, as I understand it, that was the first place on the planet that that was done. They had, wow. in that day, everything was the large computers with one central computer monster right, in the basement. Yeah. So they had to write the original software to create that where they could actually track the drugs that were being given to patients in room 305A. Um, I mean, that thing was state-of-the-art. Nothing was like it. They were the first ones in Tulsa to have birthing rooms for natural yeah. birth, that sort of thing. You know, because you were born there. I was born there. <laughs> Way up in the sky. Um, well, they began to hemorrhage, and it got so bad that basically, at that time, the university was fully uh, 
paid for and their future was already paid for in funds for the next like 40 or 50 years. Now you can always check and probably find different numbers for that, but the whole point is they had uh, money set aside for that. Right, yeah. They had to take tap into that and then basically second mortgage stuff just to keep the doors open. And it got the pressures became so great and he felt like he was failing God for whatever reason. Well, and also, you know, <laughs> let's just say, right, like the big tension here, which I'm, I want you guys to realize, a faith healer is pioneering a cutting-edge university <laughs> to study all different walks of life. Yes. And <laughs> a state-of-the-art hospital, you know, for research. Yes. And from what I understand the story, his funding begins to go down also. So, you know, the same people who would give money to him to have crusades for people to have healings and get saved aren't exactly thrilled to be giving money for people to go to a hospital that's doing research, right? I mean, it, it's not as easy for them to see the connection. <laughs> well, by that time, he had uh, really built um, a whole new audience. He was on prime time. I'm talking like right after the evening news, which was the anchor. In those days, he had three channels. The three big networks and public television. That was it. That was all you had. There was no internet. No Netflix, huh? No Netflix. So uh, right after you'd say Walter Cronkite, I think he is CBS, but whoever was on NBC, uh, <laughs> here would come Oral Roberts and prime time. And he would have Robert Goulet, who was a big name at the time. And he'd have uh, Johnny Cash and June Carter. And he'd have all the stars of those days from Hollywood or from Nashville or from whatever you want. They were there, <laughs> even if they weren't Christians. It, he brought Jerry Lewis on. Jerry Lewis is right, as yeah. Jewish as Jewish could be with no apologies. Um, uh, he it's brought like a late night people. show almost. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, these people came on and he had a tremendous thing. So he built a whole new audience. But what got him was once... Um, he made this mistake out of desperation. He said, "If you don't help us, God's going to kill me." And he every said God told him that, right? Yeah, yeah. And at that point, if you don't give this money. It had the network news, and it stayed on the news, and it stayed on the news. This is what they looked for for a long time, and um, his funding just bottomed out. Period. Everything disappeared. So he's now in danger of losing the university as well as City of Faith. Um, it was, and it was, he had to go hit the road and just do fundraising personally. But that thing led to, uh, they never officially said it, but really it, it caused him to kind of have a nervous breakdown. That's just my opinion. Uh, he didn't write any books for about five years. Uh, they were struggling just to keep the doors open and maintain the buildings they had. They did it, but it was a struggle. Uh, and about that time, I had taken a new job, not because I wanted to, but that's what happened. Anyway, somebody plopped a yellow pad on my desk where I was at, at a uh, direct mail company, and asked me, can you do anything with this? And I asked what it was. He said, well... Uh, you see, Oral Roberts is our client. We send out his mail for him. A direct mail It's a company? direct mail company, yeah. So you're not writing anything right now? No, not at that point. I, I had uh, <laughs> I started off... direct and, mail. Yeah, and direct mail. They drop like... You have to realize, I, I, I hated direct mail. I still have an intense dislike of direct mail. But the former president of the student body at that time owned this company, and, and he graciously hired me. I'm not sure I ever helped him very much until they dropped this thing on me and asked me, hey, can you do anything? Oral Roberts had 
taken a week, got went to a hotel, and prayed and spent time with the Lord, began to write on, because he always did everything longhand, he wrote out on yellow pads, about four of them, things from his heart about prayer, where God had answered prayer supernaturally from the beginning to that present day in his life. And they asked me, and so I met with Oral Roberts, and uh, we produced a book. It was the first book he'd had out in years, and it was called The Prayer Cover Over Your Life. And Oral Roberts would come up with different things to yeah. use metaphors right, for yeah. prayer cover. He said it's like a blanket that yeah. goes over your house or your children or your wife sure. when you pray. And that's a prayer cover. That's how he described it. So is this the first book that you've like ghostwritten for someone? The second one. The first one was that friend that was a professor at ORU. She's still a good So your second book is for one of the most famous people in all of, you know. Yeah, it's even funnier than that. Evangelical church, church history. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, he's up in the top ten at least. And you have to realize that uh, personal computers had just come out. Uh, if you're going to have a, a computer, it had to be like the old bank style where you had a big monster mother computer load and then you have these little drones out there to be hooked by wire to mm-hmm. it. Well, then, then IBM came out with the first PC. So this company went out and bought me a PC. And at that point, they had moved into a place, and next to it, they owned a an abandoned motel strip. Yeesh. And they said, go into one of these rooms. Yeah. It was winter. There was no heat. There was water in the floor. Uh, I took the computer out of the box, <laughs> fired it up. I think it had a whopping, like, 5K memory. <laughs> I'm serious. That was the big memory that you'd actually put a big flop in. It's just like uh, one GIF. Yeah. That you send and on so, your phone now. <laughs> so I stood there and kept my feet above water and worked on that book. And that was my major book. And it turned into a bestseller and really helped the ministry. That was a great experience for me. But the most remarkable thing, again, something that changed my view about this guy. It showed me uh, a danger area, too. Uh, when I went to meet him, he looked very old. He was uh, not as tall as he used to be. He was slumped over. He was really, like I say, looking very old. We, we met for lunch. And about halfway through, as we were talking about various things in the book, uh, we said the subject matter went back to souls because he was at his heart. He was an uh, evangelist. Yeah. He loved to share the good news of, of the love of Jesus. That's what he loved to do. Mm-hmm. In fact, even his healing crusades, he spent most time talking about Jesus and how he treated people than he did about formulas for healing because he, right, yeah, he just didn't do the formula thing. Um, we started talking about souls, and, and I kind of, this will freak some people out, but I really felt like God was kind of speaking to me and giving me a nudge in my heart. And the thing that came to my mind was, God's not done with this old man yet. And I'm saying old man respectfully. Right, yeah. This elderly gentleman. And uh, we started talking about hurting people and people who didn't know the Lord. And all of a sudden, his eyes lit up. He sat straight up, and the fire came back. And I saw the truth of that, that inner sense I had from God. I, I knew God wasn't done with him. And after that, he returned to what God had really anointed him to do. He was born to reach people with the good news about a good God. Mm-hmm. If you ever listen to old tapes about him, he was always talking about God is a good God. Something good is going to happen to you wow. today. He believed that God loved people. Yeah. He didn't 
preached a lot of hellfire and brimstone. He believes in the book. He didn't believe it, that sort of thing. But he preached about the goodness of Jesus over and over and over again. Which is still not something you hear a lot in those circles. No, you don't. And you know what? After that, shortly after that, when he resigned uh, his position uh, as president of the university, turned over to uh, his son, and he began to go out and minister to people again. It's almost like he kind of... Um Went back to his roots almost. He did. And his health came back. He His influence came back. He never rise, rose again where he once was before. But at that point, for the rest of his life, ministers came to see him. He would, he would set it up so maybe four or five would come at a time to his own home here. Later he moved to California for his health because of some problems he had. But he spent the rest of his time encouraging ministers and reaching out to people around the world. He just kind of rediscovered himself. <laughs> so basically, here's this man that, you know, is just ahead of the curve in all the ways. And he, he kind of, it's almost like he overextends himself. And, and for me, I don't even think he was wrong in it, but he, it's almost like he shoots for the stars here. Mm -hmm. Here's someone who starts with nothing, um, no education or money or background or connections. And it, you know, he gets in this place where he, he feels called by God to, to almost kind of like you know step out of his lane, and he starts this uh, university, this this college. Really, what he's seeing is this kind of a beautiful uh, futuristic <laughs> vision of how the church can begin to kind of to go beyond yep. the walls of you know, you know I guess the way we have done church oh, yeah. to fully integrate the presence of God into all of the walks of life to integrate you know faith and science. Which right. is still something that we're trying to see done in a healthy way, and he does all this stuff, and and honestly, you know, uh, he he suffers for it. He does. And so somehow you find yourself with this giant in his darkest hours, and you get to be mm -hmm. there. Now, that's a pattern I will we'll cover later, but that's right, a pattern I bring it that up. showed up the rest of my life. And so, and so, what's interesting with us, uh, with, with with you and your experiences, you seem to be the person who shows up with these very famous big people who, who are well-known, lots of money, huge ministries, all sorts of pressures, and you seem to pop up in these dark moments when they need someone that they can kind of be uh, honest with, be broken with. Um, that seems to be the case, although I do want to do... <laughs> the reason I want to be, be careful case. on that is I don't want to encourage future potential clients to think that if I come ah, see yeah, yeah. them, they're doomed. It's not always, <laughs> right? Okay. Yeah. Now... Um, this is going to be kind of our part one of our time here with Pastor Larry. Um, what are some names you can kind of tease out there for the next um, episodes? Who are some people you've worked with who they might have heard of? Uh, I am limited some because the most famous ones always include clauses about anonymity. So I will say <laughs> you've sat down with people like a Joel Osteen or like a T.D. Jakes or, you know, People like that, right? Yes. Like a Stephen Furtick. Again, I'm not saying you have, but it's names like that. It's the names yeah. that you've seen on the shelves, right? And lots and lots of bishops. Lots of bishops. Yes. <laughs> we'll say that. Okay. And and, and so um, I think next week we're going to open up some of your, your experiences with these other mm -hmm. famous people because it's a pattern that I love so much that you've gotten to do. You have this ability to kind of allow people to feel safe with you. And you always end up being this person that these people in the spotlight get to kind of, um, you know, behind closed doors, you know, they get to open up and tell you, you know, the things that they really face. Because 
seems like there's a commonality. Would you say, are there, are there things that they face that seem to be pretty common? Yes, yes. And some of those flaws, I think if I've ever learned anything, it's uh, the importance of allowing God to fully deal with your hidden stuff before you become famous. Because the house, when it falls, when you're really tall, the crash is great. And you bring a lot of people with you. And uh, all of us have those. Every single one of us has some of those core flaws or fears that make us act out the wrong way. And if we cover them up while we're becoming famous, we can drag a lot of people down with us. That's the case with many of the people I've dealt with. Or Roberts, I'd say, really did well. He's right. one of the guys that stayed clean. Of course, the greatest one I never dealt with him personally, I wish I had it, was, of course, Billy Graham. He really managed to keep his household clean. Right, yeah. Uh, personally, but even he had to deal with, with pain in his own Should home. spank that son of his more often. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. I think he's talking uh, about that. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't know it. All right. So uh, this is part one. If you guys want to hear some more, um, we'll kind of jump into part two next Monday uh, with Pastor Larry. And uh, the goal is going to be each week. I want to kind of open up more and more. Again, here's someone who has a special gifting and calling from God to kind of be put in places. One, to help these people, to get their the gift and the message out to, you know, to help encourage the people. But also, he's had this uh, side job almost where you know, he's found himself being one of the only safe places for people who carry all this pressure and weight and expectation and they don't really know who they can trust. And this this guy, especially my dad, ends up being the one who always finds himself in these situations. So, I think there's a lot we can learn from it, a lot of insight from it, so I want to open this up in the weeks to come. So, uh, remember, if you have not uh, subscribed yet to the podcast, go ahead and do that. Uh, Grace Church Offstage. I hope you guys are having a great week. I hope you find something to do this week during quarantine. And uh, I'll see you next Monday for part two with Pastor Larry.